0: Uh, If you do not know me, my name is Nick Gillespie. I'm one of the pastors here at Covenant Church, and uh, I get to kind of, you know, this is round two of our Reclaim series. Uh, We're kind of retaking a look, especially post-pandemic, you know, what do the Scriptures have to say to us about our faith, our identity, and our practices, and how we live these things out? And might we have lost some of these things along the way over the last 18, not 20 months, two years? And how is it that we can kind of re-engage the word, re-engage our lifestyle, that we might be able to live in light of God's truth and God's goodness? So the scene of the movie is this. There is a man, Ted Daniels, and his partner. They are on a boat headed to an island. Uh, Ted Daniels is a decorated World War II veteran and a very astute, diligent U.S. marshal who is being sent to Shutter Island in order to investigate a missing woman, and Kind of the scene says it all. He's on a boat. It's dreary. The waves are high. It's overcast. The music is, is communicating. There's something morose going on. There's something that is is happening in this story that you're not quite yet sure what it is. As Ted gets to the island, he's beginning to try to ask, you know, all the different, uh, uh, all the different people who like work at this place. Sorry, I should ex- explain. What the island is, sorry, it's set in the 1950s. What the island is, is it's this kind of a mental institution for very violent criminals. And so kind of back in the 1950s, what do you do with like crazy people that are violent? Well, you stick them on an island, right? And they do a lot of like scientific experiments to figure out what's going on with their brain, right? So that's kind of the set setting. So he's trying to interview different staff. He's trying to interview different um, people who are, are prisoners, trying to figure out where is this woman, Rachel, where is she at? This woman, Rachel, kind of arrived at the island because she now... There, this is like a fifth Sunday, so kids are here. So we'll just say this. Rachel was playing red rum with her three children, and it didn't turn out so well for them. Um, and so that's how she arrived there. And so now he's, as he's investigating this, people are really kind of skittish around him. People are saying things that don't quite make sense. He's there trying to do his job, and they seem to be frustrating what he's trying to accomplish while he's there. And at the same time, he's having these flashbacks, these memories of his life. And they aren't clear. They're not a direct scene from his life. It's almost like they're layered and overlapped. His time in uh, World War II, his time with his wife, his time in a burning apartment, and they're all kind of layered together. And as the story kind of unfolds, you begin to realize that Ted Daniels doesn't know who he is. And because he doesn't know who he is, he doesn't know how to interact with those who are around him on this island. And as he thinks he's searching for this missing woman, you come to find that he's really trying to search for himself. Because he can't identify who he is, he doesn't know how to live. And that's kind of the premise of the movie. And we feel that too, right? If I can't identify who I am, it's hard to know how I live. And we kind of sometimes in seasons of life feel that imbalance. What am I doing? Why am I doing these things? Why am I here? Who am I? I mean, these are the questions of the human soul, trying to figure out our identity. Now, there's this word integrity, right? Like the word integrity means to be undivided. It means to be whole. And if you were to take like gold, gold has integrity when it's pure gold and not gold plus a whole bunch of other things. And when it comes to human identity, when it comes to human identity, when we can identify who we are and then our life flows from who we are, we have integrity. But when our, the practices of our life don't fit who we say we are or we think we are, then we lack integrity and we'll live a divided life. We will struggle to identify who we are and to then allow that identity flow from our life. And this is where John takes us as we're taking a look at this letter, this epistle that John wrote to an early church because they were struggling with their identity. They had lost sight of who they were in God. So our big idea for this morning is this. Embracing and embodying our identity as God's kids produces spiritual vitality. Embracing and embodying our identity as God's kids produces spiritual vitality. Embracing, accepting, receiving, embodying, living, practicing that identity. And that's what John addresses to us. So no light work before us this morning is where we're going with this, all right? One of the reasons I love John is I think John really deals with a lot of things when it comes to philosophy and psychology when you read through uh, his letters and through his books. So what we're going to do this morning is as we take a look at this, this text, all right, we're not going to look at it. I'm not going to read it all at the same time. I'm going to read a, a couple verses. We'll unpack it here a little bit. What is John saying? We'll then go to the next section. We'll read those verses. What is John saying? And then we'll kind of look to apply it at the end once we kind of work our way through the text. So I want you guys to see what John's kind of putting together for these people. All right, chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. And now little children abide in him, him, God, Jesus, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. We see right from the beginning that John is going to put together who they are in their practices that if they understand who they are and they're living out of it, that, they're going to live a righteous life, and those things are going to be fitting. But first, he says, "Hey, he says, little children." Now, this is not to demean his audience. He's not saying, "Hey, you adolescent, you know, uh, adults who are acting like children." That's not what he's saying. This this diminutive word for this Greek term is actually a term of endearment. And so, John has just finished in the previous section of this letter. Talking about false teachers who came to to teach them something that was contrary to the good news of Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying now is he's kind of saying, hey, beloved children of God. And and he's hoping that they would lean into what he's about ready to communicate to them because he wants them to receive what he's about ready to say as a child, understanding that that what he's communicating to them is, is that they are from God. They are God's children. So hey, little children, this term of endearment, abide in him. So B, that word abide means to be or live in fellowship with God. So you can imagine like, you know, a husband or wife was sent overseas, you know, to like defend our country and they were in the military, right? And they're separated from their spouse by hundreds, thousands of miles, a different time zone, that just because they're separated physically doesn't mean that they're separated in their heart. It doesn't mean that they're separated in their relationship with one another, Right. Like their nearness has something to do with their fidelity, their commitment to one another, their communication and correspondence back and forth. That even though you might be physically apart, you still can be in your heart abiding with and in that relationship. And what John is saying is that this false teaching, we'll get into that here in a little bit, this false teaching has allowed this early church to begin to drift away from their connection with their Heavenly Father. Right, this false teaching has allowed them to begin to believe that they're further away from God than they really are. And so he's saying, little children, hey, remain connected. Remain close to your maker, to your heavenly father. Why? Because he is going to come again. This is the hope of the Christian gospel is that God, while we do not see him presently now, he will come again and we will get to see him face to face. That's our hope, right? Like, we long to see God. Again, you know, you can imagine that husband and wife, what they long to be together face-to-face. They are excited for that day of reunion. And so for us, we are excited for that day of reunion when we get to see God face-to-face again. And he says, but on that day, he wants them to live faithfully that they can be confident on that reunion day rather than lacking confidence. Now, I was raised by a single mom. And so one of kind of, you could say, the benefits or drawbacks of that was that when I got home from school, I had several hours home alone by myself till my mom arrived home at 6 p.m. And every day, I didn't know that these were the, this was the term for, but at 6 p.m. every day when mom arrived home, that was a day of reckoning for me. How did I behave when mom was gone, you know? And as an adolescent boy who was very curious and had a lot of things going on, wanted to do a lot of things, get mischief, uh, mischievous things, there was a lot of days that I regretted mom coming home. I would just like lament and stare at the clock. Can time stop? Because I don't want to get caught. I don't want to have to deal with the way that I've like, been living or behaving during this time. Uh, there was this one time where uh, uh, I was in the front room, and uh, my back was in the hallway where the front door is, and I'm, I'm working on something. And my mom walks in, and I turn around like this, and I realize I'm caught. And in one hand is wood glue. In the other hand, is the bottom half of my mom's antique great-grandmother's clock. And I was, <laughs> she's like, what's going on? I'm like, uh, I'm trying to fix the clock. I've been messing with the weights in it, and then the weights dropped out of my hands, and the whole bottom fell out. And let's just say mom walked into a lot of moments like that. Mom's coming home, right? And I'm not confident if I've been horsing around and not doing the things that are fitting for mom's house. But if I'm living the way that I know that is respectful to my mom and our house and under her kind of authority, you could say, I didn't really think about mom's coming, right? Like I had fun. I, you know, I had a good time and mom came home and it was great to see her. But now I haven't been living the way that I know I ought to live, then there's some fear there. So that's what he's saying. Little children, abide in that relationship with the heavenly father, right? Because he's going to come again. We long to see him face to face. And on that day, we want to be confident when we see him again. All right, John continues. We'll pick up in verse one of chapter three. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we, what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Again, John packs a ton here in just a couple of verses. But number one, he says, see, this is a command, behold, understand who you are. You are God's children. And about three or four different times in just these couple of verses, he affirms to them that they are beloved and that they have this fixed position as children of God. See, we're tempted as people to find our identity in conditional things rather than our position. I am who I am because of how I feel. If I feel good, then I'm something. I'm of worth. I'm of value. And if I don't feel good, I'm not of worth. I'm not of value. We can feel like we're something or we're of worth because of what we have. I mean, you know when you buy like that new outfit, right, you feel a little bit better. Like you're a little bit holier, you're a little bit more righteous than you were before when you got that outfit, right? Or especially when you buy a brand new car and there's a new car smell. There's something about a new car smell. You're like, man, I just must be an incredible human being, right? So, you know, we want to look at those things. What do I have? What do I own? What do I do? What's my position, Have I accomplished my to-do list, my checklist, am I doing good things? Do I have good intentions? Some of us, we think that we're good or we have worth because we have good intentions. I intend to do good things with my life. Therefore, I'm a good person or I have a value or of worth. As human beings, we are always searching for conditional things to find our identity. But the thing is that those conditions change all the time. My feelings change. That new car smell wears away. My position changes. My lot in life changes. Seasons change. These are inadequate places to find our identity. John knows this. John is saying, you are in a fixed position as a child of God. I mean, if you have children, you know, however your children behave, however it is that my mom walked in and whatever she found broken in her house, I was still her son. And that wasn't going to change. That was a fixed position. If you are God's child, if you've received Jesus in your life, if you said yes to his divine fatherhood, then you are his son or daughter. And John wants to drive that point home because when he gets to how they're living, he wants them to understand you live from where your identity is, this fixed position as his child. As his child. You see, we want to ask the question, who are we? When really the question is, Whose are we? Who do we belong to? Every human human being longs to belong somewhere. We long to be included. We long to have a group where we're accepted, where we're embraced. And in the divinest, highest reality, God the Father wants you to belong in him and with him, that you belong to him. It's not who are you, it's whose are you? Now John continues. He says, hey, the, the goal here." is that when we see Him face to face, that we'll be like Him, that we'll become who He's made us to be. Now, this doesn't mean that you'll be pressed through some sort of like Christmas cookie cutter kind of stamp or something like this. This is that God has uniquely designed and made you and all of us as human beings to to be made in His image. And so we long to be who we were made to be. And what John is saying is that when you are operating from this fixed position as God's children. That day of hope when we'll see him face to face will finally arrive to being who we long to be, who we were made to be. It's inherent in all of us, right? Like when we have, we just had child dedication, right? Like you have your children, you want to somehow attach your child to yourself if you're a parent or a grandparent, right? Oh, you know, his eyes are just like yours, you know? oh, you know, when she does this thing, you know, she must get her, like, reading ability from her grandfather. He was always a good reader or whatever, you know. Um, he's, a, he's an athlete. He probably gets that from his grandma, you know. We, we inherently want to attach our children to ourselves, right? And then when your child has, like, a negative thing, you always attach them to the other parent. You're like, oh, it's because of you that they're this way. Allie and I, you know, we have been married for like 17 years now. We are quite opposites from one another, and we laugh, and sometimes we agonize over the ways that we are different than one another. Uh, I remember uh, early in our dating uh, life together, we were carving pumpkins. We were just talking about this the other day. We were carving pumpkins, and I thought it would be cute and playful and flirty to throw pumpkin pulp at her. <laughs> so I grabbed the pumpkin pulp, and I throw it at her, and it hits her in the face, and she, I had never seen this look on her face Ever. I mean, I, th- I was like, is something wrong? What did I do? <laughs> and she was so offended. She was so offended. So Allie, Allie is very organized. You know, we say America runs on Duncan. Well, the Gillespie's run on Allie because she makes so much happen in our life. We would not eat or be dre- I look the way I do because of Allie. Like, that's the only way that this happens, right? Whatever, however you judge this, she put it together. So it's not my responsibility, it's hers. I mean, Allie just, like, she nails her schedule down. I mean, she, like, plans times when she's going to plan her times. Like, that's how she is. And for me, for me, like, you know, you're like, hey, Nick, plan your perfect day. Well, if I've got to plan my perfect day, it's already imperfect. Like, I don't want to plan my perfect day. I want to wake up and do whatever it is that I want to do, like, in the moment is what I want to do. And so, anyways, I'm much more kind of spontaneous. And I just want to kind of go with the flow. Let's let not be stressed or anything like that. And Allie's much like, hey, let's schedule, you know. And so one of our kids, my daughter Madison, she's a little forgetful. And so when she leaves stuff at school, which happens often, her coat, her lunchbox, her red folder with homework in it, it's like, how could you forget this stuff? And Madison's like, I don't know. And I'm always like, honey, let's you know, let's give her some grace here. Like, maybe I would do that too. Madison comes home and she dove in the mud, like at football practice or not, or playing at recess with the kids. How did you get so muddy? didn't you know it was muddy? And uh, Maddie's like, I don't know. I was just playing football, and I dove for the ball and stuff. And I'm like, I probably would have dove in the mud as well. <laughs> so, you know, there's those things where you're like, oh, man, I, I love this about my child. You know, we, we want to be like our, uh, we want our kids to be like us. We want them to be like, uh, what, you know, we want to be like them. We want to have that attachment, right? Because we're inherent. It's inherent in us to be affiliated in that way. And so it is in the divine sense, if we really look at our longings, man, we want to be like God. We want to be like God. Compassionate, loving, gentle, other-centered, generous. And God has made us to be in his image. And these are good things that we should embrace these desires. These are good desires that we should embrace and move in and towards them. And so what does he say? You're pure, what? Not how you behave. You're pure when your hope is a hope that God has put in your heart. When you hope to be like him, to be, to be again reclaimed in his image, then you will move towards purity. You'll move towards integrity. That's what John is saying to the church. All right, well, he's got more things to say, so let's keep on going. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning "'Also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning.' should tell us something about the identity from which we live from. And this is where we have to be self-aware. How am I living and how are these practices, how are those coming from the true identity I'm like living from? Ted Daniels, in that movie Shutter Island, he was a violent man, he was the murderer, but he wouldn't come to grips with his behavior, that he would properly understand who he is. He wanted to ignore those things. And as Christians, we can tend to do that too. As long as I feel it, as long as I have good intentions towards God, that's good enough. And we don't realize that our behavior is actually telling us whether or not we're living rooted in this true identity of being God's kids or from another identity, from another place. So the teaching at this time was called Gnosticism. uh, It was kind of a a way of kind of uh, elevating spiritual enlightenment, spiritual knowledge, and if you had the right knowledge, then you're going to sort of transcend the human experience, the earthly experience. And so what this teaching did, these false teachers did, is, is, is you know, have you focus on a, a arriving at, achieving, attaining this, this, you know, spiritual knowledge that you might tra- transcend. And then what they said is all material matter, your flesh, your earthly desires, and the things that you do in your body with your time, your day, in the space, and history, All that stuff is bad and evil and is going away. And what they did was they basically said, it doesn't matter. Do whatever you want to do today. Because as long as you're trying to obtain this higher elevated spiritual knowledge, all of this is going to pass away. It's nothing. So it gave people, it gave particularly Christians, permission to pursue any desire that they wanted, anything that pleased themselves. And what they weren't recognizing is as they sought to please their earthly life and their earthly body, they were slowly losing their identity as God's children. And he wanted them to bring the two together, their behavior, their practice, back in with their fixed position as being God's kids. You could call it divine, either living as a divine orphan or living divinely adopted. You're either living divinely orphaned or living divinely adopted. Divinely orphans. How do divinely orphans live? They're anxious, they're stressed out. They feel like they have to do everything on their own. They feel like they're the ones that are in complete control of their life. They're the ones that feel like they have to juggle everything. They're prideful. They think that they've gotten where they have gotten because of their own hard work, because of their own deeds, of their own making. And so they've severed themselves from having this and being in a relationship with their maker. And divinely adopted people understand where it is that they come from. That God is the one who cares for them. God is one who oversees them. God is the one who has their whole history in view, has their whole well-being in purview, who desires to do good things for them. You know, our day and age, we flipped it. Rather than calling the material world bad, we call the material world ultimate. Whether it's capitalism or humanism or whatever ism you want to attach to it, we keep on saying The best life is in the here and now. How can you be happy right now? How can you be pleased right now? What thing do you need to own or what title do you need to your name? What is it that you're going to do in order to make yourself feel confident, affirmed, uh, uh, of, of value, of worth? And we keep on pursuing these things on our own, as if, if we just attach these things and if we highlight or elevate our human experience, that that's a good life. And what God says is that the telos, the goal of humanity, the goal of humanity is to be back in relationship with our creator, back under that covering, back under him, which brings what we do in the body and the flesh and our ultimate, our eternal nature, our eternal selves, back in unison with one another, correctly connected to each other. Um, there was a, a grandfather who adopted his grandson. Um, his son had left. Uh, his son had left his household and uh, ha- had a son. And him and his, uh, I don't, not wife, but him and his partner were pretty negligent raising their son. And this boy had kind of grown up on his own. I've got to kind of fend for myself. I've got to take care of me because mom and dad got other things going on. And so finally the, you know, child services stepped in, removed the child from this very negligent home and reunited him with his grandfather, which he had not seen before or been around. So grandpa takes in his grandson and begins to care for him the way that a father would care for him, the way that a child ought to be properly cared for. But the thing is that he rebelled against that. It didn't make sense to him. It was weird. He just thought he had to continue to fend for himself. And one particular day when they went out to the store together, the grandson was caught stealing. So they get home and the grandson obviously in his heart feels like, man, that's it. My grandpa's going to spank me or do something. I get some big consequence or something like that. And as they walk in the house, the grandfather invites his grandson to sit on the couch. He says, sit down, son said, so I want you to understand something. He says, You are my son now, and I am your father. You don't have to live like that anymore. You don't have to live like an orphan anymore. And we don't have to live like orphans. We don't have to live like we're the ones that have to have all the answers and all the things. And we've got to make our life count, and we've got to make our life matter because we have a heavenly father who knows us intimately inside and out from beginning to end and into eternity. He has your best interests in mind, and he wants you to live as his child, not as an orphan. And that's the invitation of the gospel. That's the invitation of identity for us. And I think during COVID, I think during COVID, if there's ever a season for us to feel like we had to retake the reins of our life back in our own hands, this has been the season. How do I get through? How do I make sure my family's safe and I'm safe and I keep my job and I provide for my family? And all of a sudden, without realizing it, our lifestyle began to be a lifestyle of an orphan rather than that of God's own child. Allie and I were dropping uh, Grant off at um, a summer camp uh, with his friend Noah, who's, uh, they're sitting next to each other right now. And uh, dropping your kid off at summer camp right for the week is it's troubling because you're like, I'm, I'm dropping off the most precious thing that I have in my life, turning over a bunch of people I don't even know, right? And they all have pimples on their face, and you're like, are you going to make sure that my child is okay at the end of the week, right? And because of COVID, all of the closure that you're looking for in this experience isn't there, you don't really get to shake hands with the counselor or meet any of the staff. You don't get to, like, walk to, you know, your son's cabin and set up his bunk for the week and make sure that he's good or even give him a goodbye hug and kiss before you leave for the week. None of that was there. It was literally drive up, boot him out of the van. Here's your luggage. We'll see you in a week, right? And so what was the experience. So Allie and I are driving away from the camp, and uh, we're texting with our friend Melanie because she felt the same way. Uh, and Allie and I, just all the red lights, right, as a parent, you're like, oh, my gosh, like, what is going on? This is evil. We're doing evil to our child. He's not going to make it, you know? And so we're so anxious. What email do we need to send? And I think at one point in time, Allie's like, we've got to turn around. Nick, turn the car around and go pick him up. And I just had this moment where I was just like, wait. I was like, wait. What are we believing here? Who's in control? Do we really believe That God has a heavenly father. Yes, we believe that Grant has a heavenly father. Do we believe that that same heavenly father is our heavenly father? Yes, we believe that he's our heavenly father. Do we believe that he's more in control, more loving, uh, more caring, more powerful, more in the know than us? Yes, we believe all of these things. And man, the whole air of the of the van was completely changed just by reminding ourselves we are God's kids. He is God's kid he's got it. We don't have to. That doesn't mean that we'd be irresponsible, right? But what it did mean is that we didn't have to have all the answers and that we could reclaim that identity. We could live in this place of being rooted in him. And so as we close, as we close, I just want to ask you this. One, have you embraced being God's child? Have you ever received Jesus in your life? John says in his other gospel, John 1, 12, for those who receive him, Jesus, for those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. When you receive Jesus into your life, you now are God's kid, that fixed position. Have you received him? If you never have, I would invite you to tell God you want to be his kid. And it's as simple as that. It's not about what you do. It's not about having him fix your life up or anything like that. God wants you in his family. And it just has to do with, I want to be in that family. Maybe you've said yes to being in that family, maybe you've been, but you, maybe you've been living as a divine orphan for months, years, and maybe baptism that we've got coming up in two weeks, maybe that is your opportunity that God is saying, you know what, I want you to be baptized. Not that that makes you my child, you already are, but that baptism is a way of outwardly saying in a very real way, I am God's kid. I was in my own flesh, and then as I was washed clean. I now am a new creation. I'm now not an orphan. I'm now an adopted son or adopted daughter. Maybe baptism is that way in this season of you reclaiming your identity in the Father. So have you embraced it? But secondly, are you embodying it? For those of us, myself included, if you call yourself a son or daughter of the King, are you living the life of someone that's a kid? A kid is carefree, right? Parents ultimately have the responsibility, right? They, they care for you. And are you living that way? Do you stand from that place? Are you reminding yourself every day as you wake up, you don't have to achieve at work. You don't have to achieve as a parent. You don't have to get that to-do list done in order to be something. You already are. Are you living from that fixed position? And this final section that we took a look at, that's what he was saying in regards to like the devil and God, is that most of us through our practices were living from that fixed position of coming from in our identity apart from God, severed from Him. And if we're His children, let us come underneath and remind ourselves and live from that place. And then as we have that position, then the way that we live that out as we go about our life is gonna be drastically different. We're gonna find ourselves practicing the household rules of God, you could say. And so that's the way I wanna leave it. I wanna... Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org slash connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.